This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. This week's episode is entitled, The Papacy in Crisis. There is no question that the papacy is in crisis. The Return to Order Moment and many other podcasters have discussed the various crises of Pope Francis's pontificate in great detail. However, that is not our topic today. It is easy for modern people to think that the problems that they face are unprecedented. To an extent, that is true. A popular cliché notwithstanding, history never repeats itself. At least not exactly. At the same time, history does provide us with a context into which we can place the conflicts of our own day. That is the purpose of today's podcast. Over its 2,000-year history... Holy Mother Church has faced and overcome many crises, most of which looked as dire to those living through them as our current crisis does to us. One of those crises was known as the Avignon Captivity, during which time the papacy fell so much under the influence of the French that the seat of the papacy moved from Rome to Avignon, France, and stayed there for 70 years. Many historians look upon this as the low point of the papacy, at least up to that time. Overcoming much resistance, Pope Gregory XI moved the papacy back to Rome in 1377. While we cannot know for sure, it is likely that many thought that this papal crisis was over. They were very wrong. In today's episode of the Return to Order Moment, Longtime TFP member and historian, the late Jeremiah Wells, tells the story of that next crisis, a time during which three different men claimed to be the rightful pope. This article was published under the title The Great Western Schism in the March-April 2002 issue of Crusade Magazine. We tell this story in the hopes that our listeners will draw encouragement from the historical resilience of the church founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised us that he would not forsake her or us. And now, The Papacy in Crisis by Jeremiah Wells. The 70-year entrapment of the papacy in Avignon left the state of the church in shambles. Rome had degenerated into an overgrown village, with grass sprouting on the steps of St. Peter's Basilica. In northern Italy, bloody feuds erupted between the major city-states, accompanied by torture, execution, and other savage cruelties. In defiance of the advice of St. Catherine of Siena, who recommended reconciliation, Pope Gregory XI sent an army mostly mercenaries from Brittany and England, into the field under Cardinal Robert of Geneva against a rebellious Bologna. A fortnight after Gregory's arrival in Rome, Robert's mercenaries massacred a civilian population of 4,000 in the town of Cecina, which only increased the anti-papal hatred in the other Italian cities, especially Florence. While at Avignon, some of the popes and many of the cardinals lived frivolous and irresponsible lives that expended enormous amounts of money. To compensate for the financial drain, they raised the customary taxes and multiplied their demands. 
This served to increase the animosity toward the Papal See, especially in England and Germany, which felt that the excessive extractions were enriching France. The Protestant revolutionaries in these countries utilized this complaint over a hundred years later. The turmoil impeded the necessary reforms, causing great damage to the religious and moral state of affairs and giving rise to anti-clerical sects throughout Europe. But as bad as this situation was, worse was to follow. During the conclave that followed Gregory's death in 1378, a boisterous crowd gathered outside the Vatican and demanded that a Roman or at least an Italian pope be elected. Nevertheless, the election went ahead despite the disturbance. The cardinals chose the Archbishop of Bari in southern Italy, who took the name Urban VI. Although not a cardinal, the native of Naples had earned a good reputation as an official in the Curia, both at Avignon and at Rome. All the actions of the subsequent days indicated that the cardinals acknowledged Urban as the rightful pope. However, in those early days, a violent and impetuous nature in Urban rose to the surface that remained unchecked and drove him to attack the cardinals with threats and insults. Since some of them were lacking in virtue and piety, some correction from the zealous pope could be accepted as reasonable. However, the wild and imprudent attacks deeply offended the luxurious prelates and made any working arrangement difficult, if not impossible. A rebellion against the pontiff was clearly contemplated by the cardinals, who were mostly French, and was encouraged by the French king, who wished to bring back the days of Avignon. One by one, the cardinals slipped out of Rome and assembled at Agony, where they declared that Urban's election had been invalid because of the disturbance by the Roman population outside the conclave. They subsequently elected Robert of Geneva, who had led the slaughter at Cesena, as an antipope who called himself Clement VII. Robert, in the summer of 1379, moved his curia back to a more congenial and hospitable Avignon. France, Scotland, Spain, and Naples, all of whom were motivated by more political necessities, joined Robert's obedience. The rest of Christendom stayed faithful to Urban. This terrible calamity, the Great Western Schism, broke the unity of Christendom which had contributed so much to the supernatural idea represented by the mystical body of Christ and increased the commitment of Christian thinking to the merely material aspects of life. Although saints and blesseds, because of the confusion, were found in both camps, St. Catherine of Siena placed the pernicious chain of events in their proper perspective. In a letter to three of the cardinals, the great mystic warned, quote, You clearly know the truth, that Urban VI is truly Pope, chosen in orderly election, not influenced by fear, truly by divine inspiration than by your human industry. Now you have turned your back on him as craven and miserable knights. 
What is the cause? The poison of self-love which has infected the world. Instead of being angels on earth, you have taken the office of devils. You are leading us into obedience to Antichrist, a member of the devil as you are too, so long as you shall abide in this heresy. Unquote. Great chaos and scandal ensued, which understandably brought more disrespect toward the Holy See. Both claimants to the papacy made shameful deals with lay princes to strengthen their positions. When discord touches the head, it necessarily spreads to the body. The thorough reform that was urgently needed throughout the church was sadly neglected, especially the need to bring bishops and clergy back to their responsibility of caring for the souls of the faithful, to provide seminaries to train the parochial clergy, and to correct the errors in the various universities and schools. The violence that followed, the list of mediocre popes, and the perfidious intrigues of the French crown do not make for enlightened or edifying reading. When St. Catherine looked at the lives of the cardinals, she, quote, looked in vain for virtue and holiness, unquote. And that can apply to the whole deplorable mess, which incredibly drifted into a condition even more deplorable. In 1409, the cardinals of the Roman and Avignon obediences deserted their chosen pontiffs at the so-called Council of Pisa, which was totally illegal, deposed the two sitting popes, and elected their successor. The two deposed popes refused to abdicate, so the church was faced with the impossible predicament of having three of them. The right to vote in the council was extended to university professors of theology and canon law in violation of all conciliar tradition, which hitheretofore had included only bishops, generals of the mendicant orders, abbots, and priors. The pernicious anti-papal ideas of William of Ockham and Marsilius of Padua had moved from the realm of thought into the arena of action by a revolutionary council that claimed jurisdiction over all, including popes. That the church climbed out of such an abyss of confusion and dangerous tendencies can only be attributed to the guidance of the Holy Ghost. With a potential tidal wave of destruction threatening to carry all before it, those most concerned appealed to Sigismund, the Holy Roman Emperor, or, since he was never crowned, the King of the Romans, to use the prestige of his office and call for another council. He convoked a council at the German city of Constance on the lake of that name, but it was controlled by churchmen with the most revolutionary intentions. Led by Pierre Dalili, one-time chancellor of the University of Paris, now cardinal and bishop of Cambrai, the general council asserted that the pope must be subject to its jurisdiction and in the third, fourth, and fifth sessions went on to declare that the pope could not dissolve the council 
without its own consent. The conciliarist bloc then proceeded to force each of the papal claimants to resign. Baldassare Cosa, the second in the Pisan line, merely abdicated after he was threatened with a trial. Then they went after Gregory Twelfth, the true pope, and here the action of divine province becomes clearly visible. The pope agreed, providing that they allowed him to officially convoke the council. Surprisingly, they agreed. By this maneuver, all the decrees that were passed before that time were voided, although the more radical members adhered to them, and Gregory's primacy was implicitly yet officially recognized. Pedro de Luna, the last of the Avignon line, remained obstinate to the end, but his chief supporters, including St. Vincent Ferrer and the King of Aragon, gave their allegiance to the conciliar depositions. After de Luna was deposed, he fled back to his ancestral castle and obscurity. Among the important decrees enacted during the authorized sessions was a stipulation that the next council must be held within five years, another one seven years later, and thereafter at intervals of ten years. The council then proceeded to its great business of electing Martin V as the first undisputed pope in forty years. Pope Martin because of the revolutionary ferment that invaded the hearts of many rebellious churchmen, abhorred the idea of another council. Nevertheless, under strong pressure, he called for one anyway to meet at Pavia in 1423. After a plague forced the council to Siena, Martin's legates took advantage of the small attendance caused by numerous wars in Europe to dissolve it and call for another in Basel in 1431. Before then, however, Martin, after neglecting to effect a much-needed reform of ecclesiastical affairs to head off another potential schism, passed from the scene to be replaced by another temporizing pope, Eugene IV, 1431-1447. to 1447. The beginning of the 18th Ecumenical Council followed the same anti-papal democratic trend as the previous one. By far, the majority of the delegates were neither in the hierarchy of the church nor in holy orders. From the start, they took the position that the council was superior to the pope and expected him to comply with their demands. They proposed such a complete revolution in church discipline that if the priests followed suit, they would rebel against their bishops and the faithful would disregard their priests. To a large extent, that is, unfortunately, what happened a hundred years later. Although the actions of divine providence rarely appear in historical documents, its presence must be assumed for the danger to the divinely established constitution of the church was so great that the promised protection of Christ See Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, was utterly necessary, as we shall see. In the early days, Eugenius had sent the delegates a bull, 
dissolving the council, and they answered by stating that it was the Pope's duty to obey a general council, and without its own consent, it could not be dissolved or transferred. More revolutionary and hostile instructions followed. In April of 1432, the Pope and his cardinals were ordered to present themselves before the council within three months and issued dire threats for noncompliance. Several cardinals defected, and by the middle of the summer, only six of the original 21 remained faithful to Eugenius. The kings of France, England, Scotland, and Castile lent their support by sending large delegations. The council, now feeling the surge of victory, increased the persecution by making more demands and stripping away papal prerogatives. In the summer of 1433, they removed from the Holy See its right to appoint bishops and abbots and ordered the Pope to announce solemnly his acceptance of all the council's decrees and instructions. Sick and under military attack, Eugenius inaugurated a series of concessions which attempted to appease their harsh demands while trying to prevent a complete capitulation. While the church faced this terrible ordeal, the Duchy of Milan invaded the Papal States and conquered large tracts of land. The beleaguered Pope's Roman enemies and his own soldiers who saw a chance to enrich themselves, joined the attack. Eugenius fled the Vatican and from one palace to another, staying just ahead of a calamitous capture. Suffering from illness and the loss of his territory, with his treasury empty and abandoned by most of his supporters, Eugenius yielded to all the demands of the council. A few months later, Revolutionaries stormed the city of Rome and proclaimed a republic. The Pope, disguised as a Benedictine monk, went to the Tiber and boarded a boat, but he was recognized before he could get away. Despite a barrage of rocks hitting the boat, he made his escape uninjured to Florence, where he set up residence in a Dominican monastery. While at Florence, Eugenius began to display an impressive regal calm and confidence in God's justice that won back many of those who had defected. Conversely, the wild and impulsible claims of the revolutionaries at Basel repelled many of the more moderate churchmen who feared another schism. An invasion of Southeast Europe by the Turks contributed to the solution of the crisis. Quickly realizing that the true power in Christendom lay with the Pope, the Greeks asked him to convene a general council at a convenient location. With increasing confidence in his superior authority, he sent a bull in September 1437 to Basel, transferring the council to Ferrara in the northeast portion of the Papal States, which about half of the delegates answered. A plague in the latter city necessitated another move to Florence. A year later, at this formally convoked ecumenical council, the Greeks yielded on the major points that the Holy Ghost proceeded from both the Father and the Son, Filioque, 
and that the Pope held primacy over the universal church. Unfortunately, the union was short-lived, for in their bitter stubbornness, the mass of the people in Constantinople maintained their anti-papal spirit. The famous saying, Better the turban of the prophet than the Pope's tiara, sums up their mentality. And they got their wish in 1453. An increasingly small group of malcontents remained in Basel, but their ability to cause any further mischief was broken. France and Germany took steps to reduce papal influence in their realms and increase their own, which, of course, foreshadowed ominous consequences for the future. Three years before his death in 1447, Eugenius returned to Rome to make peace with the warring factions and to begin, once again, the restoration of the Holy See and the Papal States. The Church survived each of the crises enumerated here, but the area, infected by the decay of faith and the loss of supernatural life, grew larger and larger. This concludes the Papacy in Crisis. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. As with any genuine historian, Mr. Wells was careful to cite his sources. In a bibliographical note, he pointed out that he primarily used four sources to construct this essay. They were Phillips Hughes's A History of the Church, Volume 3, Ludwig Pastor's History of the Popes, Volume 3, Louis Salambier's The Great Schism of the West, and Joseph Gill S.J.'s Eugenius IV. All of these fine works are out of print. However, all but the Ludwig Pastor book are available online. Links to those books are provided in the show notes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the return to order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T.F.P.